Hi, everybody. This is Charlie from the Thriving School Community Podcast. I'm so glad to be here today with Brenda and Lindsay. We're going to talk about something extraordinary, actually. We're going to talk about something called the Hope Institute. I won't spoil it, but I will tell you, it is a community-wide approach to how we can improve school mental health, which will radiate out into our communities, our families, and our future generations. So I cannot wait to talk about this. All right. Welcome, Brenda. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for inviting us to the Thrive School community. This is exciting. I appreciate you making this available. Yeah, you know what? It's so important to have these conversations and what better way to do it than this, right? And and we're super casual here, but they are important topics because we all know that looking out for our kids, like it's crucial and it starts with the adults. So can Brenda, can you just give a little bit of background on who you are and what you bring to the table to, for this conversation? And then we'll talk to Lindsay for the same reason. Okay. Absolutely, Charlie. And thank you for the invitation to, you know, have us on your podcast and share with our community and larger school community and um, about the things that we're doing. And we don't have it all figured out, but we are certainly risk takers in trying to do our best for kids and really um, minimize that lethal gap and hopefully, you know, do away with it completely. My name is Brenda Vargas, as you just shared. I'm the Director of Counseling and Social Services for Chandler Unified. Um, But first and foremost, I'm a parent. I'm a teacher at heart, a school counselor, a former administrator, and at a district level now in ensuring that we provide all the services necessary as we deal with this mental health epidemic in our nation. Um, we are in the East Valley of Phoenix um, in a suburb called Chandler, Arizona. And so we are about 80 square miles as a school district with over 47 buildings, K-12. Wow. We're the second largest district in the state. Um, and some of the work that we do, we really focus all of our resources in providing the necessary support to school counselors, school social workers, so that they have the right training in order to address some of our biggest problems and needs in schools and support our greater school community that includes staff as well as parents. So when we know better, we do better. And it's our job to continue to learn in order to assist students with some of the toughest behaviors that they're facing um, and knowing how to support parents in the best way possible because we live busy lives and we want to make sure we are up to speed in doing everything we can to help parents, which is, I believe, the toughest job in the world. Um, It is the toughest, scariest, most heartbreaking and exciting job in the entire world. Yes, I agree with you. Oh my goodness. And I love, I love Brenda that you bring in the, all the community partners. So staff for sure, kids for sure, parents for sure. It it takes all of us to make that big difference that we need to see. Okay. Lindsay, tell what you're bringing into the conversation then like like your background a little bit. Yes. So, um, I am the high school social worker at a local school here in Chandler Perry high school. Um, so I work with ages ninth or 12th grade, Um, So I'm kind of on the front lines of this topic. Um, I'm in the day-to-day works with um, helping students, families, staff, um, you know, seeing the the challenges that our community has faced, especially in the last several years post-COVID. I personally, like Brenda, you know, first and foremost, am a mom. Um, And so not only have I seen these struggles in the professional, in my professional realm at the school as as the social worker, Um, But also I have dealt with this on a very personal level at home with my own son, um, who I actually lost um, to uh, an overdose a couple years ago. So um, I have a lot of uh, personal experience um, with 
struggling with getting him mental help for his mental health um, and just kind of what the pandemic shook up for our entire community. Yeah, that's really heavy. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here because it's, it's so heavy that we have to talk about it. We can't ignore this any longer. And so for you, Lindsay, how do you get out there and use such a strong voice when you're still managing through the grief? If you don't Um, mind me sharing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, I was just born for this, my heart, this is my heart, soul, my entire passion. Um, And so really, honestly, this has helped through my grief journey, um, just to be able to continue to advocate for um, our students and our community. Um, You know, there's been a lack of resources. I think all uh, school counselors and social workers can really relate to that, Um, just school personnel in general, teachers, administrators. Um, And so it really gives me a lot of purpose to continue to fight for these kids, fight for our community, um, improve the services and resources that we have. Um, And so I think that being in this role and this position um, has helped me use my son's um, legacy to carry that on, but also to continue to help help our community. Yeah. Yeah, and as a former high school teacher who became a therapist specializing in trauma, I, I tell you that because I appreciate that you're doing that because we carry so much with us um, on a personal level. We, we then love all of our kids, which there are students, right? Our students are our kids. And when you're so close to it like that, when you're so close to it, you have to learn to be honest and manage through it and, and show up, keep showing up. And so it's really a struggle in a lot of ways. So I appreciate that you're doing this and it does take the whole community. So Brenda, can you talk a little bit about why collaboration is so important if we're going to make real change for youth mental health? The, I mean, this is something that schools cannot do alone. That was very obvious to us. We are very, very lucky that we are in a very generous, collaborative community. We have not just parents, but nonprofits as well as for-profit um, agencies that want to help and do everything that we can. During some of our toughest times, when we were when we were dealing with the loss of life of um, one too many children and students in our school, um, it was a very heavy time. We took that responsibility very seriously as to. How how we responded um, and how we showed up for kids, but also how we showed up for parents in the greater school community because globally we're all connected. Um, Whether they knew the student that we had lost or not, whether we knew the cause or knew the intricate details, it didn't matter, loss is loss. And what magnified that was COVID and the loss that we experienced of how to live, how to interact, right? That was a loss in itself, in addition to the loss of life that all of us experience at some point or another. Um, So I think it was just engaging in conversations making sure that people knew they had open invitations to our table to sit and learn and for us to learn together. You know, we had to put on our student hats a lot of time because every every community we're over 80 square miles is very unique. Every school has its own personality and culture and climate. And we had to be really open to understanding what that school needed and what that community was starving for and humbly sit with them alongside with them in order to figure out those 
solutions with the community partners that were in their backyard, as well as looking at research from like a national standpoint as to what works, what do we know for sure, right? And what do we still have to unmask or uncover in order to figure out? And just being very humble about that and saying, we don't know. And so part of this required all of us to work not just collaboratively but really honestly about listen i know this piece is not is important to do however doing it this way even though it fulfills an adult need it may not fulfill a student need or what we should be doing for students at a school within the school walls versus beyond the school walls as a community and those were some tough conversations sometimes because Community members want to help. They're big hearted folks that if they're showing up to have a conversation with us, it's because they want to roll up their sleeves and they want to do something and be helpful. But sometimes in a school setting, right, we have to have certain boundaries in place right. and we um, there's certain there's certain certain pieces we can go about it. And obviously there are limitations that we have. So that's when we have to ask other community partners to step in. And I know I'm speaking in, in, in generalities, but I think people that work within a school can kind of understand a little bit, but really is open to having dialogue, honest dialogue about what we can and cannot do. Yeah, you know, that makes me think about when I worked in hospitals with teens who were really struggling with suicidality, self-harm, a lot of the, the really tough stuff. Um, and the biggest issue I had was when I was trying to help them transition out of the hospital setting and back into not only their family setting, because that itself is a, could, could be destructive too, but back into the schools. And a lot of schools didn't know how to receive them back where there was a huge lack of communication. So Lindsay, what in your role, like what do you think needs to happen with our community partners in order to make that experience good for the kid to come back, but also to inform the teachers who there's confidentiality and stuff around that. What do we do about that? What do you, how do you yeah, address it? I mean, I think it's a really, you know, tricky issue. I think a lot of times when we see kids coming back from hospitalization, um, I think we lack communication in that wraparound care and services. And just we even lack the wraparound services, the, the, the um, most effective, appropriate wraparound services. Um, and so I think that uh, parents don't know how to navigate that system. Kids come back to school. They kind of just get thrown back into the works and there's not a whole lot of support. Um, and especially at larger schools, you know, we, we are a larger school, a larger district. Um, it's challenging um, to meet all the needs um, and to make sure that every family has um, the services that they need and that those wraparound services are really solid for this student. Um, and so I think, you know, what we have tried to do as a department the last, you know, several years is really bridge those gaps in the system um, so that we can support students, parents, and our teachers, you know, in the best way possible. Um, and I think that, you know, with teachers, so what we do at our school is we hold support plan meetings when kids come back from hospitalization. And so that is to help get teachers on the same page um, and staff, school psychologists, counselors, myself, the social worker, um, on how can we best support this kid, right? Here at school, coming back from this hospitalization, we know this kid is struggling with you know, anxiety or depression or whatever it may be. And so that meeting is, is our bridge, right? To try and, and help that student um, reacclimate into school and to, and to give them the services that they need. 
Um, but like I said, I think it gets tricky when um, we don't have constant eyes on that kid or the, the wraparound services are lacking. And so the family feels like their kid was just hospitalized, but they didn't actually get the care that they needed and the support that they needed. Um, and I would add, you know, mm -hmm. when students are receiving some type of treatment, we're usually removing them from their social supports. Right. By removing them from their social supports, yes. we're isolating. And no. usually our youth, they need their social supports in order to, you know, make it through and adjust and obviously learn how to navigate that. So they're removed and then they're placed back. And it's kind of, you know, that really what I would consider not a professional term, but wonky, wonky time <laughs> that they're trying to navigate navigate and try to figure out, well, you know, did anyone miss me? I didn't receive any text messages and now I'm being placed back in. Now people are asking me questions where I was. So the mm -hmm. whole point is for us, our system was not working in the sense of our school system with our mental health system. And so what we've tried to do is create a bridge to put something in the middle where we're not necessarily removing them from their social supports. They're still able to attend school, right? If we can ensure their safety, but we're able to provide them specific treatment so that they can can get the help that they need because they're the most vulnerable at that time if they're having thoughts of suicide while still continuing to go to school and have their social supports. Yeah, that's a good point. And those are the overt cases. I mean, what about the ones that are suffering in silence? I mean, what about that? So I want you to think about using using what we already have in place, and that's teachers. There's a ton of other adults in the school. What if what if they were equipped enough, not to be therapists, but enough to bridge that gap? What would that look like? And would something like that work? Yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we have um, taken a very yeah. proactive approach to collectively um, train teachers on youth mental health first aid, which is basically mental health uh, 101. I call it the CPR version, right, um, for teachers. Right. And we pay teachers to take this. Right. Um, we don't expect them to give up their time, uh, free time. And we have, um, we, we do believe that it is important for them to have some foundational knowledge about mental health, not just warning signs and being able to address, you know, and identify students that are dealing with crisis, but hopefully intervene way before crisis happens so that we can right. certainly get the student, the family help that they need, um, as Lindsay mentioned. The piece that we have to acknowledge and, and be really honest about is teachers have so much responsibility in our task to do so many different things. And we are dealing with an educator retention crisis in which we just don't have enough great hearted people, the people that we have, we're trying to maintain and make sure that they stay well. And we know there's a direct correlation with what how our students are feeling with how our greater um, adults are feeling as well and the mental health um, challenges that exist for everyday people, not just for kids, not just for youth. So um, it's about wellness all the way around. It's not just for kids. Um, and so being able to provide them the same options that we could be providing students. And I think the task really at hand is for school boards and school um, district leaders to make decisions about how we're going to support not just kids, but how are we going to support staff all around so that they continue to be able to show up and show up at their 100% best self year after year. 
Yeah, yeah I'll just, you know, adding to the question that you asked, Charlie, and, and what Brenda was saying, um, again, our department the last several years has looked at, okay, where are our gaps, right? And, and I think that you're right, you know, teachers are the ones that see the students every single day. As a social worker, I don't see every student every day, right? Um, our teachers are the ones that have eyes on those students every day. And so it is so important that they have some foundational knowledge and training um, in youth mental health to be able to identify um, a student that might be struggling and then refer them to the school counselor, school social worker. So like Brenda was saying, um, we are working towards training all of our teachers in the youth mental health first aid training so that they so that they have that foundational knowledge to make those connections. Um, and to identify the students struggling and connect them with the school counselor and social worker. Um, we also, I'll just add, it's super exciting. We piloted a program um, this year that goes along with the youth mental health first aid training. So that one is for adults, um, but they have one called teen mental health first aid training where we train our teens on how to identify their peers who are struggling and intervene and get that um, peer connected to an adult for help because we know uh, that kids go to their peers first when they're struggling. Um, oftentimes they go to peers, they do not go to adults. And so we wanna give um, other teens the tools as well um, to help their friends and get them connected to an adult to further assist. So we also did that this year as a district, which was super exciting. Again, trying to close those gaps, um, provide more you know, services, not only for our, our staff, but also, um, you know, partner with agencies outside for that wraparound care just to really, like, like I said, close these gaps. We often forget kids in this equation and we for often forget to ask them. And I think something that we have been very diligent about is to include them in the conversations. As adults, sometimes we put all these barriers that we know exist. And when they think about a problem and they think about a solution or possible solutions, they sometimes don't think about the barriers that us as adults know, the systems that we have to work through. Mm, and yeah. so uh, it's very refreshing to talk to kids about what are the most pressing things and what do they see as possible solutions so that we can marry that and make it work within the system that we have to function. So I want to highlight that talking to kids and ensuring that they're part of the solution focused discussions and discourse that needs to happen is something that school districts need to make sure that they do. That's awesome because we forget to talk with the kids and their voice is so very powerful. As you know, they give up, they, they're such great informants. They're great historians and so are teachers. They can be, but I think part of it is that they lack the confidence to use it if they're not sure how to use it. And that's, I think that's the biggest change that we have to do is make everybody confident that, hey, I may not get it right, but I got to do something. I can't just do nothing. Right. And yeah. so tell me what that would look like if you had, well, actually, I want to ask this question because Lindsay, this is a really important question. Let's say I'm a teacher and I'm concerned. I don't know why I'm concerned, but something's off with one of my students. What do I do next? Is there an easy system to then refer this kid? Yeah, so um, the teachers just email me. That's what they do. So they are encouraged to email myself and usually they copy the school counselor because like I said, we're a large school. Um, I work in, uh, with the counseling team. So we work together as a team. Um, so we tell teachers that if you're concerned about a kid, um, send us an email and we will follow up with that kid. Um, you had mentioned confidentiality earlier in the conversation yes. and that that is a tough one too. Um, so we are also, you know, careful on training our staff not to include too much information in an email, right? Pick up the phone and call 
um, but you can just alert us uh, um, of a student and we don't use full names and that kind of thing on email. But um, the teachers know to contact myself and a counselor if they're concerned. And if they need to add more detail, it's a phone call. That's good. Do you think, because I just, I know this from talking to so many teachers, do you think that any kids are getting left behind because it seems like an extra chore to go send one more email? Is there something there that's a gap or a limitation? Um, you know, I, I actually feel very confident and I guess maybe I'm only speaking to my school, right? Um, well, that's good. <laughs> um, but I, I feel very confident that, um, our, my teachers are very aware of me and, and the work that, that I do and the counselors do and how beneficial that it's been to kids. They've seen, you know, um, a lot of benefit with having a social worker on campus. They, we didn't always have one this, you know, we just brought social workers to every high school four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I actually think teachers are, are very relieved to have that resource and to, um, if they have any, uh, inclination that a kid's struggling, uh, they send them my way. So that's not to say that there's maybe some teachers that are more hesitant or just kind of let it go by the way. So I'm, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. That doesn't exist. Um, but I do think that teachers are seeing First of all, they're seeing the need, right? They're noticing it in their classrooms. They're seeing that kids are struggling and to have the resource on campus, to have a social worker, to have somebody that can help those kids and link those kids and families to resources. I think teachers are more than, than happy and willing to reach out and refer kids that, that they think are struggling. Well, you said it there. They know what you're for. They know what your yeah. need, like what the service is. And a lot of people don't yeah. know what the social worker does in the school. So that right there filled that gap because you communicate yeah. well with them clearly. Thank you. Brenda, yeah. what are you going to say? You know, it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of effort in order to really educate your community because it's not just students as to not just the roles that exist within a school that are here to help for those pieces, but also in reducing stigma. A student is not gonna ask for help if there is any shame built in being able to ask for help or potentially the location of where the individual is if they're in the office near where potentially there is a principal or assistant principal because of disciplinary issues, right? Like there is so much wrapped up in the getting to the access point of receiving the services that we as schools and uh, staff need to make sure that we are reducing as much as possible. So therefore, it's not seen as a negative. Therefore, it isn't, isn't this, you know, um, walk, walk in regards to feeling some shame or, you know, guilt because they need help. We really need to do a really good job in our communities about educating the greater school community, the fact that it's okay to talk about when you're not okay, the fact that these roles exist for this reason, and there's nothing wrong with getting some extra support. Our jobs are really for students to be able to come to school to receive. And if a student is in distress for whatever reason, it doesn't matter the why, that they can go to somebody and be able to then return to class as quickly as possible to continue to receive instruction. Because that is ultimately the, the goal. Our goal is to educate students. But students sometimes aren't able to be in a place where they can receive. It doesn't matter, and I jokingly say, if the teacher's standing on their head with the best lesson and the best curriculum, right? If you're not in a place to receive, you're just not going to, to be able to at all take in what that teacher is trying to teach you. So we need to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to reduce that stigma and, and educate all stakeholders. 
Yeah, I mean, it is about education. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and what we've been trying to do to solve the youth mental health crisis is to then only equip students. I mean, we're doing SEL. SEL is great. We all know SEL is awesome. There's tons of data behind it. But if we're just equipping kids and then sending them right back to the stressed out parents, stressed out teachers who are burning out, and then we're expecting kids to to do well and function well in those same environments, it's not going to work. And so that's why I love that you're looking at it as a whole community. It has to be, it has to be. So let's then talk about the Hope Institute and what direction you're going with. What big? I know your vision is huge. I know it. And I'm so excited. So talk a little bit about how that's being rolled out and what you see down the road with that. So one of the biggest pieces that we started to see five years ago as we we became a department uh, five years ago, so you're going to hear that reference quite a bit and your, your audience will as well. Parents were either ending up in the ER or with very short-term solutions for their kids at, at a very, very crisis level state. And it just was not, um, it was a Band-Aid, I guess. And we started going down the research rabbit hole in the last year and a half. We were connected with the uh, very famous suicidologist in the nation, Dr. David Jobes. Um, and he is just known from a research standpoint uh, um, in doing the work regards suicide intervention and suicide treatment. I'll let um, Lynn share a little bit more in detail. Um, and we were connected with the Hope Institute, which exists out of Perrysburg, Ohio. It's a suicide-specific treatment center in a community that is not connected to a school. And in our many conversations, it really was obvious to me and my team that we needed to look at really finding the means in order to bring the Hope Institute to Chandler Unified School District. Because it was so obvious to me after seeing the research of youth being able to be out of thoughts of suicide within 5.2 weeks that we needed to have that option for our families and that every school community and geographic area in the U.S. should have this option as well. Right. So we decided to lobby um, with our district administration and our board in order to get the resources necessary to be able to have our own Hope Institute. And our doors will open mid-August here in Chandler. Wow. And wow. so it will be for Chandler Unified School District students, staff, and families um, because we have the financial resources in order to be able to um, kind of bring it up to speed and have the space, this beautiful space. It's going to be a house that is being um, reconstructed to be a, a, a suicide-specific clinic um, in which students from our district will be able to be referred Within um, 48 business hours, students will be able to be seen. We're definitely trying to get that to 24 hours. Yeah. Um, students could be seen up to four and five times a week, depending on what they need. And I'm going to have Lindsay share a little bit about the type of treatment and why it's so important that we've partnered with Dr. David Jobes and the training that he has created, which showcases right how we can reduce that lethal gap. Awesome. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that we're all familiar with, you know, our overburdened mental health care system and, and some of the gaps within it. And I think, um, you know, our, our only options right now for kids who are struggling with thoughts of suicide really is hospitalization. Um, and that, you know, hospitalization is reserved just for those that need to be stabilized in imminent danger. That's really um, the purpose of hospitalizations. Um, it's not actual treatment, as, as Brenda said. Um, oftentimes, it's more of the Band-Aid um, just to get the, the kids stabilized. Um, and so um, we, we were really 
missing um, that, again, that, that gap. And then also, you know, getting kids referred to therapy, oftentimes there's a wait list. Um, and, and often there's, there's kind of this misconception um, or people don't realize that therapists don't always specialize in treating um, suicidality. Right. Uh, they treat right. all other issues and get to underlying issues, you know, but um, suicide is a very, uh, suicidal thoughts, you know, that struggle is a very specific thing. And, and a lot of clinicians don't treat that specifically. Um, again, if, if a kid is uh, having thoughts of suicide, a clinician will refer them potentially to a behavioral health hospital. So, um, so anyway, the Hope Institute, um, when I heard about this, I was like, this exists. I mean, amazing. The model is um, so wonderful, evidence-based, which is so, so important. Um, so they use um, two therapeutic modalities that, like I said, specifically target the thoughts of suicide. The first one is called CAMS, and this is what Dr. Um, Jobs um, created. It stands for Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. And then they use a model called DBT, Dialectal Behavioral Therapy. And they pair those two together, and it's a very targeted and specific intervention that they have been using at the Hope Institute in Ohio, and they have seen um, some really positive, uh, it's, it's been very beneficial in that community. They haven't lost anybody to suicide in that community. Um, they have a very wow. low recidivism rate. Wow. Um, that's so that's even, a big deal. Yeah, big yeah. deal. Yeah. Huge. Cause okay. Go yeah. on. Yeah. 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 We, <laughs> we I, mean, we, I don't want to gloss over that. That's a big yeah. deal. They haven't lost anyone. The recidivism is low. That's yeah. huge. That's great. Sorry, right, keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. Cause we, we see in hospitals that it's, it's not uncommon for kids to end up back there. So um, and I think it's less than 2% the recidivism. Yeah. It's wow. really low. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the skills that they teach them through those modalities. And like I said, um, I mean, the intervention is so targeted and so specific that um, they're, they're, seeing the success and being able to um, get somebody out of thoughts of suicide. And so that way, when that, um, in our case, in the school district, when that kid, um, that student, when we've treated them, we've given them the, the skills and the tools to then deal with when another challenge comes up, um, to be able to deal with that challenge or those overwhelming um, thoughts that often lead to the thoughts of suicide. Um, and so we actually call it the drivers of suicide. Um, that's what we're looking at. What specifically are your drivers? And that is that is exactly what we're targeting. The Hope Institute does not do uh, long-term therapy. We don't get to any underlying issues. We're not treating depression. We're not treating anxiety. We are specifically treating what are the drivers of these thoughts of suicide. And so that's what makes it unique um, to what other facilities do. Well, that's- and for any, no, for that's, any that- yeah, Charlie, for any student that needs continued services, they would refer out to another behavioral yes. health clinic after that student is out of thoughts of suicide. So we've already partnered with, you know, other agencies so that that can be a seamless process that's set up well in advance so the student doesn't have to wait, right, an extended period of time in order then to see their next clinician. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that in itself is huge because then they feel left behind and they there's distrust and they're like, I'm here at the hospital. Now what? Oh, you right. can't treat me. You just have to stabilize. They have no idea, do they? Mm -hmm. And then everybody is still distraught when they leave the hospital and yeah. don't have a plan. So this is huge for anybody in this system who knows what it's like. This is a huge deal. This is a big deal. Mm -hmm. So when you talked about drivers and you identified drivers as something unique, right, to the program, what mm -hmm. do you do with those? What's the next piece? 
do you communicate that to their treatment for their treatment plan? What yeah. Is, okay. Yeah. So it's all a part. It, it, like I said, it's a very specific um, model that we follow. Um, okay. So even the documentation and kind of the way that we're running um, our individual therapy sessions and our group sessions are very targeted, very specific. Um, uh, but it's also tailored to the individual, right? Um, so we, when that student comes in, it's a very lengthy uh, intake process and safety, a part of that intake process is safety planning, okay? Um, and so obviously the goal is to keep the kids safe while they're receiving treatment. But um, again, the way that the Hope Institute does things, um, they, they leave with hope. They leave with hope after the first intake that we are going to treat this, oh. we are going to help you through this. Yeah, and that's the most important thing. Yes. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so then the treatment from there is, is you know, based on that student's needs, but the way that the um, therapeutic modalities are, are used and the way that the program is structured is, is very specific to get to what is the driver in this case. And I think, you know, the other important thing to mention here is oftentimes um, thoughts of suicide really are escapism thoughts. And so what that means is, you know, um, when life gets hard, when something hard happens or life gets overwhelming, it's not uncommon uh, for anybody to have thoughts of, I would be, I would rather be anywhere but here or anything but this, or I just can't take this anymore. Like those are actually very normal feelings and thoughts. So we actually call those escapism thoughts. Um, and so oftentimes when, what we see is when somebody's having suicidal thoughts, um, they don't actually want to die. Um, they, they just aren't able to cope with their current life circumstances and situations. Again, those drivers. Um, and so this CAMS and DDT model get to the bottom of, of teaching this kid how to cope with the drivers and with the challenges and with the overwhelm. And, and again, wrapping hope all into that is so, so important. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing high prevalence of, right, in our youth, is that they're going straight to escapism. That's mm -hmm. the difference between now and maybe yeah. even five or six years ago. Agreed. They're seeing it. yes. it's higher frequency, right. it's sooner. That's why we're seeing younger students. There's so many other distractions that our children and youth, and youth have to deal with today that that escapism thing is something they're going to almost immediately, mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe in our day and age, if we're going to date ourselves, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the case. Yeah, but maybe. there are other factors that really are serving are, are, are really blockages in so that they can't get to that piece where they can see beyond and see the light to that. This is just this is just a hump mm -hmm. in what I'm experiencing and see the light at the end of the tunnel. They're not seeing that light, which is our job to ignite that light and bring that hope so that they can see this too shall pass. Right. With our support. Yeah. And the skills and tools to yeah. work through those and, drivers. And helping teach our parents and guardians mm -hmm. and our caregivers mm -hmm. how to instill that hope because they need it just as much as a student. When a student and someone's child is in crisis, as a parent, you too are in crisis because mm -hmm. all you want is your kid to be better and all this to go away. So they are in crisis in a whole different way that all they want to believe is that they're going to get better and that this isn't as bad as it may seem. And they just want to believe that. So the minute 24 hours pass or, you know, the weekend or the crisis, they want to believe it's all said and done. That was just an isolated incident. So mm -hmm. it's our job 
And part of the Hope Institute is about educating also the caregiver to know how to deal with some of these drivers when they're articulating it and hopefully, right, getting them, getting the student to the point that they can articulate it and ask for help and equipping the parents with those skills and strategies as well. Hmm. Can we do this with really young kids and really <laughs> parents who have little, little kids or are just thinking about being a parent? I mean, where do we start? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the Hope Institute of CUSD is going to work with kids K through 12. Um, so we, we will work with kids, you know, I, I, unfortunately you do see some younger ones as well, struggling with thoughts of suicide. Um, and so it's just, it's a reality across all ages. Right. Um, but in, in what you're saying in terms of educating the community, I mean, yes, I think we need to start educating parents before they become parents, right? On yes. kind of today's world and some of the unique challenges because it is a different world than what we grew up in. Um, kids fa are facing different challenges. And so um, parents need that knowledge too on, on how to preventative measures, right? Preventative. Yes. Yeah. Yes, preventative. And and as taboo as this might be to talk about for certain, you know, subgroups of our community and culturally speaking, um, it's really important that people understand this is about saving lives. While you may not agree with your, you know, child's decision making and or the mistakes that they have made and or their value system potentially even being different than yours or whatever the case might be, because we could list a litany of reasons as kids try to navigate who they are and figure out the world and, you know, peers and all the fun decisions they get to make as they get older. Yeah. At the end of the day, we want our children to be alive and well-adjusted. And that is most important. So, you know, the question sometimes is, I understand that you might be in a disagreement with your youth, especially in those teenage years, which is so normal for that to happen, right? right. However, you know, would, would you rather work through those problems and issues that maybe you aren't in agreement with because we're really trying to save your child's life? Mm. And any yes. problem can be worked through. That is it. Any problem is, is manageable with the right tools in mindset and learning. I love that you said that. Oh my goodness. Okay. So what, what's missing? What else haven't we said that needs to be said? <sighs> A lot, probably. You know, There's so much to say. Right? <laughs> you know, I think I would, I, I would propose a call to action to our uh, decision makers, our governing boards of 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 our school districts, and um, those in high level decision making power roles. That it's very important as we navigate these uncharted waters about how to show up for kids and families, um, that we really think out of the box about some of our solutions to some of our biggest problems. And I would encourage for there to be more dialogue, as difficult as it may be, um, and I know for a lot of board members, it's very difficult to, to, to have to sit in a seat in which you're making decisions about communities that impact so many different families. Um, However, I know that the reason that people do it is because um, they, they are they want to help, right? They, they want to be and I jokingly say this, and I think I've said this probably too much this year, but I remember as a kid watching PBS and watching Mr. Rogers in that community. And wouldn't it be nice if we could all look out for each other, right? How do we yes. do that? while still honoring and respecting every single family values and every, every single, you know, different cultural, cultural pieces for different families and how do superintendents navigate to keep communities happy 
especially for some of the things that are the heaviest and most pressing, that they're in a very, very, very difficult spot to have to make decisions for large communities. It's not an easy task, but it's really about giving each other grace as we try to do all of it because none of us are perfect. Hmm. Are you sure? Nobody is? (laughs) We can't even agree on which books to keep in our libraries. Yeah. Well, no, and and it's all so, so very important. Okay. So let's do a last thought. If there's one thing, so I'll ask each of you, Brenda, I'll start with you. If there was one thing you want people who are listening to this, so we're talking about education leaders, educators, people who are positioned in schools, school counselors, people who are thinking about how do I create change in my school to make improvements? What's one thing they should start doing today? That's such a loaded question. It is always loaded. (laughs) Everybody says it, but it's true. What's what? Because we've got to start with one step. It can be small. I think, I mean, I think I have something. I would say, um, remember that we're all in this together. Um, I think that that one simple thing we forget. Um, Sometimes I think uh, there's there's barriers, there's blocks, there's division in, in some of what we're doing. There's disagreements, and that's okay. Disagreements are a good thing because disagreements we can still have conversations around what do we need to be doing right to help our community. Um, so I think disagreements are, are great. They open up, you know, they they are a part of conversation. Um, but we're all in this together because at the end of the day, um, we are all parents in our community. We are all educators in our community. Um, we are all advocates for our students. And so um, we need to remember that we're doing this together and, and to come together, even if we disagree, even among our disagreements, come together awesome. and have the conversations. Awesome. I definitely don't think I can top that, Lindsay, because you're <laughs> um, You'll have something. What's you know, one thing? I'm going to go back to giving each other grace. I We don't know what battles other people are facing, no matter what their role of responsibility or titles are. Um, and I think this is, we're living, this is a human experience. And we need to be, we need to honor ourselves as a group as who we are, who we're showing up to be. And that includes kids. Um, And and sometimes we may not know, but just the opportunity to give somebody the space to listen. And that is a very simple task that anyone can do to listen without judgment. Um, And you may not know the answer today, however, but giving that time maybe down the road, it, the, the solution will evolve itself, right? And, and will we'll be more clear. But I just think time really helps us find ways. Um, and if we don't find a way, we have to make a way for, for, for kids um, because it is our duty and responsibility to show up for them. And, and there is no, we should not allow the barriers to get in the way and or potentially the lack of resources, because where there is a will, there is a way and someone will knock on a door, the phone will ring and there, there in lie lies part of the solution as to who we bring on board in order to complete right that 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 plan to help all kids. Um, so I just really believe that and we just appreciate this time, Charlene, being able to share and Anyone that wants to reach out, we're happy to engage. Yeah. And how can they do that? How can they reach you? So a couple different ways. Um, We do have an email for the Hope Institute, and that's at thi.cusd 
at gmail.com. And again, thi.cusd at gmail.com. Um, our contact information can be found a couple of different ways, but maybe the easiest way would be to go to our school district website, which is www.cusd80.com. We're under the Counseling and Social Services Department, um, and that's how folks can get in contact with us as well. Um, you can also follow us. We're both on Twitter. You can share your Twitter handle. Yes. Yeah, so um, my Twitter handle for Perry is at Pumas Matter. Um, at, but I don't know if I mentioned, I am going over to the Hope Institute to be the clinical director. That's um, so exciting. Oh yes, my gosh. I, didn't, I didn't mention that. That's, <laughs> that's a big deal. That's the oh reason why she's on this call. I, yeah. am, I am leaving that's this school, deal. sadly, very bittersweet, but I'm also yeah. so excited for this. Um, I just think the Hope Institute's amazing. So yeah, but um, so I'll be in the community. I'm sure I don't have my contact yet. And, info yet for the Hope Institute. But um, if they email that Hope Institute email, that's the way to get in touch with me for now. Awesome. And then I can be reached on Twitter at Brenda E. Vargas. And I think once you um, share this publicly, you can tag us as well, Charlie, and we'd be happy to engage with anybody and share. Nothing we do is a secret. We share with all of our partners and all of our um, other school surrounding school districts, all of our resources. Um, so we are happy to share because what's good for our kids could potentially be great for other, other kids in other school districts as well. Oh my goodness. And it gives people hope. We all need some hope. So thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you for what you do. And I appreciate your, all the, the positioning that you have. I appreciate you using that for good, you know, for that good yeah. change. So thank you for all that hard work you're doing. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Thanks everybody for being here. We'll see you next time.